This fall, we're in a series called The Gospel of Jesus. We believe the gospel presents a compelling case for what Jesus' early followers believed. Jesus fulfilled God's promise to redeem His creation and make all things new. We believe the gospel of Jesus makes the most sense in explaining the meaning and purpose of life and our part in it. Why did Jesus perform miracles? And why not more of them? Well, here we are continuing in our Gospel of Jesus series. Uh, not that there is a Gospel of Jesus, but the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, comprise the Gospel uh, of whom Jesus <laughs> is the core, is the center, is the focus. So I'm calling this series the Gospel of Jesus so that we can ask questions that create conversations uh, that build community. Great questions uh, engender great conversations that support uh, a deeper experience of community. So we're asking questions, and today we're asking the question, why did Jesus perform miracles? Uh, why did Jesus perform miracles? And sort of a secondary question that we're, we're not going to address, but hopefully will uh, come clear to you, the answer uh, is, and why didn't he do more of them? Uh, the big question is, why did Jesus do miracles? And I wonder, why didn't he do more of them? So I want to start with a question for you. Have you ever experienced a miracle? Have you ever experienced a miracle? Uh, and I've been asking people that question, and most people I've asked would say, yes, I have. And they describe things that sound pretty much like miracles. Now, if you ask me uh, if, if I have experienced miracles, uh, I have a very wide range of that. Uh, for that response that might not actually qualify as miracles. So, for example, it was a miracle I got the job. Well, not necessarily. If you're competent and you fit the criteria, that wasn't much of a miracle. It's called a hire, right? An application, interrogation, I mean interview, and then you got the job. Um, I got the date. Oh, that, that, might, that might constitute a miracle. Uh, what about this one? I passed the test. Well, it would be a miracle, perhaps, if you had never been exposed to the subject and you took the test. But if you've been a reasonably astute student, okay, you passed the test. That might be hard work, not necessarily a miracle. I avoided an accident. Oh, maybe that might be in the realm of miracle. Uh, I got my wallet back. Wow. I was horseback riding with a friend. Uh, we were in college, and we got up to, from San Jose, uh, in the Bay Area, we went up to uh, Half Moon Bay a remote part of Half Moon Bay, way north uh, of San Jose, and we were riding horses on the beach, having a great time, and uh, got home uh, and discovered I couldn't find my wallet. And for the next couple of days, I thought, I have no idea what I did with my wallet. Credit card, driver's license, what little cash I had at the time. And then about the third day, I come home, and there on my porch is my wallet. Uh, no name, no number, just a note saying, I found this on the beach in Half Moon Bay. Now, that was a, where I lived to Half Moon Bay and back, as the crow flies, isn't a big distance, maybe 50 miles. But in terms of the wear and tear to get there and the effort to return my wallet, that's huge. So I would say, see, that sounds like a borderline miracle. But really, at the end of the day, that was a really considerate person doing me a very big favor. Uh, but there's some things that I would say probably do constitute the miraculous. Uh, I witnessed healings in South Africa that convinced me I'd seen miracles. Uh, it was in Transkei, and Transkei is a very remote part of South Africa, bordering the Indian Ocean. 
And we were way, way uh, into the back country of Transkei, into a village that had uh, little or never uh, contact with white people. And uh, a group of, of evangelists uh, had traveled, a bunch of Transkei people, uh, uh, Osa people, the click language people, uh, who were believers, had gone to this very remote village to talk about Jesus. And they, they put all these people in a, in a stake bed truck. And this is pitch black at night, and uh, uh, you're traveling on a dirt road by star and moonlight, pretty much. And we get to the village, and we're going up a small hill, and the truck stalls, and it starts to roll backwards. It rolls over. A little girl who'd been running alongside the truck, all excited to see these people showing up in her village, ran over her leg and broke her leg. And then the truck uh, abruptly stopped and launched all these young people out of the back of the truck. And then it started rolling again. It rolled over some of the kids and rolled over one guy across his middle section, and he was very seriously injured. And we bring them into a, a mud dung hut. And in this mud dung hut that had been cleared out so that we could um, uh, stay in it, uh, at the very top of it was a, an active bee's nest. And all these bees are buzzing around. So you're in this very interesting situation, very dark, candlelight. We bring these kids in. Uh, I'm with a doctor, Mike Maywood, and another friend, Joe Bibesh. And Mike starts to look at these uh, kids and said, oh my gosh, there's some serious injuries here. And yet there's no medical support, and the closest clinic is 100 miles away, back toward the coast. And just then, the team of evangelists, uh, young people, old people, came in, along with the, some people from the village, and just gathered around. The village people were watching, and all these evangelists uh, started praying. And they prayed for a very long time. This went on and on and on through the night, praying uh, over these two kids, who Mike had determined were very seriously injured. The little girl, uh, a broken leg, uh, clearly broken leg, and the, the young man, serious internal damage and maybe some breakage. So uh, they prayed, 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 prayed. Uh, we put the little girl to bed uh, and, 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 and made the young boy comfortable, thinking that the next day Mike was going to drive out with the guy in the truck 100 miles to the clinic and see what they could do. Next day, the kid, the little girl wakes up, and her leg is healed, and she's running around with her friends. The young man... Um, Seems to be fine, but, but it was so serious the night before in the exam that, that Mike took him uh, with some other people to the doctor. Get to this clinic, uh, and they have an x-ray machine, and the kid is fine. The doctor said, apparently he's been healed. So those were pretty profound experiences uh, in, in out-of-the-way places to see people uh, authentically healed after a very clear injury. Uh, years ago, I was doing a sabbatical at Princeton Seminary uh, for about five weeks, and I studied with a man named James Loder. James Loder was a um, highly regarded professor at Princeton Seminary, an extremely liberal theologian who would pretty much uh, discount anything that would be miraculous or answered prayer. He was more into the theological uh, abstraction sort of thing. Um, but as I met with him, uh, I knew he had been transformed, and so I wanted to study with him, and I was, I was sitting there, and he, and he told me his story. And it was basically that he'd grown up in a Christian family, as had his wife. They had pretty much left that tradition. He was a theologian uh, in the liberal bent, and uh, uh, one day they were driving along the New Jersey Turnpike. They saw a car on the side of the road in distress. They pull over to render aid. He's standing between the two vehicles when a, a, another car I think it was a truck, uh, uh, hit them. 
pushing the car that he was, uh, the, the car that was disabled, onto uh, Jim Loader and crushing his chest uh, and, and severing his thumb. His wife, very petite woman, uh, sees him under the, the, the car being crushed, and she goes to the front of the car and says, in the name of Jesus, and lifts the car up off of him. And they, some people now had pulled over to help, and they pull him out from under the car, call an ambulance. They bring him, the ambulance brings him to the hospital. They said, oh my gosh, you need surgery immediately, emergency surgery, massive internal damaging. And so as he's sitting there waiting to go into surgery, his wife calls her parents, her very aged parents who are now in a retirement community, but are really uh, awesome, focused, Bible-believing, miracle-believing Christians. And so she said, Mom and Dad, please pray for Jim. He's been in a horrible accident. He's going in for surgery. So they begin to pray, and they enlist the friends around them to pray, and, and they're praying for healing. As Jim is sitting there, in the, uh, ready to be rolled into surgery, he's kind of hazy, but he realizes he's having this incredible sense of warmth going through his whole body, to the point that he realizes, I've been healed. Still don't have half my thumb, but I've been healed. And so as the, as the medical personnel, uh, personnel came in to roll him into the surgical unit, into the surgical room, uh, he said, hey, hey, whoa, whoa, I'm, I, I think I've been healed. And they said, oh, you're, you're maybe just out of it right now. No, no, I, 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 I know uh, physiology. Uh, I have done my own you know, internal assessment uh, of me, and I've been healed. And they said, okay, fine. So they pulled him back out, and they ran some tests, and sure enough, he'd been healed. Well, as he told me the story, when he started to talk about Jesus, he would tear up. He was moved so deeply. Now, this is several years after the incident, but for the rest of his life, when he got up and started to talk about Jesus, he'd get very emotional. He's still one of the most brilliant professors at Princeton Seminary, but now he was sort of ostracized and marginalized because there's a guy who believes in miracles, answer to prayer, and they called him the resident mystic way of further marginalizing him. He wrote a book called The Transforming Moment, documenting not only his experience, but how he understood it theologically now. Profound book, The Transforming Moment. Final example I'll give you, uh, as a pastor in Newport Beach, uh, I was asked to go pray for a man at Hogue Hospital, uh, who I knew really well. He probably, in his, at the time, was in his 70s. He's going in for some major uh, heart surgery, and uh, so I went in uh, to his room. He was going to be having surgery first thing the next morning. I, I prayed with him, and he, and he asked that I would pray for healing, not just for a good surgical outcome, but for healing. So I prayed over him for healing, put my hands on him, prayed for his healing, uh, and left him there. And then uh, next day I called him and said, hey, how is Bob doing? Uh, and he said, well, Mr. Curtis has been discharged. First of all, I said, he's no longer here, and I thought, oh, my gosh, did he die? But he's been discharged. And they wouldn't tell me, couldn't tell me anything else. I called his home. He's chuckling, saying, I don't know, but I was healed. I had a very serious, serious heart issue, and, and that's why I was there, obviously, for surgery. And they ran all the tests again the next day, and I've been healed. Now, of course, eventually, years later, he died, but he'd been healed. So these are three examples uh, of, of real experiences uh, around healing. And I could give you lots more, but those are three that come to mind. So let me ask you this. Um, these are really trying times we're living in, right? Could you use a miracle? Could you use a miracle? You need a miracle. 
Uh, I mean, I could use one or two, right? Everybody is suffering through this very difficult time. And then that makes me ask the question, well, what would constitute a miracle? What is a miracle? What comes to mind when you think of miracles? So here's the first point of this message. Miracles are occasional. God's provision for us is ongoing. Miracles are occasional, but God's providence is ongoing. And we'll talk more about that in the rest of this message. So let me start by saying what miracles aren't. Uh, if, the, if, if this big idea is miracles are occasional, what, what, what aren't miracles? Miracles are not God dropping uninvited and announced into our world, that's how we see it, our world, to bless us or impress us. So miracles aren't God dropping uninvited, unannounced into the world to bless or impress. Uh, this view really sees God as sort of either the Disneyland dad or the um, uh, deadbeat dad. And let me explain that. A deadbeat dad is a dad that doesn't provide child support, doesn't support the mother of his children, uh, and has just abandoned the family. That's a deadbeat dad. A Disneyland dad is a step above a deadbeat dad. A Disneyland dad says, hey, I'm, I'm not going to be too involved. I'm probably not going to support. But you know what? I'm going to sweep in every once in a while and do something fantastic to impress you. And so this is the Disneyland dad. He takes the kid to Disneyland. The kid has this wonderful day, goes home, and tells this beleaguered single mom how awesome his dad is. She didn't have the heart to say, but honey, your father doesn't even support us. We have a loving heavenly father, not a deadbeat dad or a Disneyland dad. So miracles aren't just God swooping in to impress everybody. The second thing a miracle isn't is an exception to the laws of nature. A miracle, a biblical miracle, is not an exception to the laws of nature. It's not breaking, bending, compromising the laws of nature. What they are is that they express God's original design in nature, in creation, for our wholeness. That's why they are wonderful, powerful, and meaningful moments. And these are the three words that are used to describe miracles in the Bible. Both Hebraic and Greek words describe with the same words, different words with the same meaning for, for three terms. Uh, the wonderful, the powerful, and the meaningful. Because a, an authentic biblical miracle produces wonder, Something powerful happens, and it has meaning. It's not just a, gee, that was interesting. What else can you do? The third thing a miracle isn't is a way to avoid suffering, pain, problems, discipline, or responsibility. Gee, I need to lose 20 pounds. Lord, can I have a miracle? Can I just have the, 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 the weight go away? Um, I love the way that we see in, in Acts chapter 3 and chapter 4, uh, the people of God responding to a traumatic threatening situation. It turns out that Peter and John, uh, this is following the resurrection of Jesus and Pentecost when the Holy Spirit had been given uh, to the people. Peter and John are at the temple, coming out of the temple, having worshipped in the temple, and they see a man who's about 40 years old, a lifelong uh, paralytic, being, being carried uh, to the gate called Beautiful on the way into the temple, so that all the people coming in or out of the temple would walk by this guy and be moved to give him money. So he beseeches them for money. And Peter says, you know, silver or gold have I none. But what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus be healed. He grabs the man's hand and he pulls and the man stands up. He's been healed. He's, he's shocked. He's delighted. He follows him into the, he, they, they go back into the temple. Or on their way to the temple. I can't remember which way now. But they were, they were going into the temple uh, and the man comes with them. And he's laughing and shouting praises to God. He's, he's dancing. 
He can't believe his good fortune. And, and people are saying, what happened? And when the authorities uh, see this, they say, what's going on? And he says, I was healed in, in the name of Jesus by these guys. So these guys, Peter and John, are arrested. They're, they're questioned, hey, by what power, what name did you do this? And why? And they say, well, in the name of Jesus. Which creates a, a lot of offense and indignation on the part of the authorities. They threaten them. Uh, and Peter and John say, well, what are we supposed to do? Obey God or you? There's no other name by which we can be saved but the name of Jesus. He's the one who's done this. It's not us, it's him. In us. The power of God at work. So uh, it's, it, they've been threatened and now intimidated. They go back to meet with uh, uh, this small fellowship of Christians who are meeting. There were 3,000 after Pentecost, but now there's, there's a house full of people meeting, and they explain the situation to them. Now, what do these people do? They don't say, oh, my gosh, let's pray for a miracle to, to be protected from this or to avoid this. What they prayed for is boldness. And they say, Lord, with signs and wonders, make your, your name known, but give us boldness to proclaim this good news, to take a stand, to step out in faith. You see, a miracle isn't avoiding responsibility. It's not... Avoiding suffering or pain, problems, avoiding discipline. It's saying, Lord, I want to live and walk with you and serve with you. So, what's the problem for us? Well, it's that we have an 18th century view of miracles. Uh, this is an Enlightenment view of miracles uh, personified in David Hume and others, Voltaire, Rousseau. But David Hume specifically, writing about how anybody who believes in a miracle must be a fool or a liar, an uneducated, unsophisticated person. Basically, he mocks anybody who would uh, hold up a miracle as a possibility. Why? Because he has a small mind and he has a closed world. He's closed his mind and closed his understanding of the world so as not to allow a miracle. Wow. This is a, this is a belief, not a fact. Because the 18th century, the Enlightenment model is this is a fact. These are the facts of life. Where in fact it's really a belief about life, a closed mind, and a closed system. It's throwing the baby out with the bathwater. It's a reaction to small thinking about God resulting in smaller thinking about God. And here's what I mean by that. The Enlightenment uh, was a time of discovery, which is fantastic, scientific discovery, etc. But it was also a time when people were restless because the church as an institution was trying to control everything about people. And it felt even oppressive. And so in casting off the church's oppressive control, resistance to change and growth, it's as if the church had abandoned the gospel that sets us free in order to be in charge of a system that would keep people contained. And so the baby is thrown out with the bathwater. And so along with it go any belief as to the divinity of Jesus, the, the um, efficacy of miracles, the involvement of God. And so small thinking on the part of the church results in smaller thinking on the part of the culture, and the culture rushes on to embrace all kinds of new ideas, much of which are fantastic uh, scientific insights and developments, but also a philosophic view. It isn't based on fact, but it is based on, on an assumption that this is all there is. And yet the Bible tells us, Psalm 24 says, The earth is the Lord's, and everything in it, the world, and all who live in it, it's all His. He has never given up the world that he created, the world that he owns. And yet, even though this is true, Jesus doesn't force himself into our lives, does he? 
We see this in Revelation 3.20. Jesus says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and eat with that person and they with me. He doesn't barge in, but he's present in this world nonetheless. So the second idea, if the first is miracles are occasional, but God's provision is ongoing, the second point is this. Miracles reveal that we live in a world created for us and sustained for us by God. A world created by and sustained by God himself. As much as we'd like to think we are masters of the universe, there is but one master of the universe. It's the Lord Almighty. And so we're accountable to him for how we treat the world and how we conduct ourselves within it. And so miracles express God's providence and sovereignty. Because he's Lord over all, he's sovereign, he's the king of the world, he provides for the world. Now it's a fallen world. You think, well, he's not, a do- he's not doing a very good job providing. Well, there's a world in rebellion to God. But nonetheless, he's sovereign and he is providing. Why? Because he loves his creation. He loves you. When our kids were really little, I'd say, you know what I like about you? And they'd say, what? And I'd say, everything. And they caught on to it pretty quickly. So if I started to say, hey, do you know what I like about you? About them, they'd say, everything. And then it became, hey, do you know Everything. They just so knew that I loved everything about them. I didn't mean I would put up with something that was wrong. I would correct them. I would discipline them with love uh, and gentleness, but with clear conviction that that's not okay. And yet they knew I love them nonetheless. I love them always, forever. That's how God is with us. He's a loving Heavenly Father. He loves us. Everything about us He loves. And that's why He loves us so much He won't even let our sin get in the way of His redemptive Sacrifice on our behalf. So this offends and threatens those who see life in a, with a closed mind as a closed system. Uh, have you heard of the Jefferson Bible? Thomas Jefferson, in his spare time, uh, took the Bible and he started with a razor and scissors cutting out everything he didn't like. And pretty much that was all the miracles about Jesus, anything that spoke about Jesus' divinity, anything that pertained to our accountability to God, God's ownership of the world, and our need for forgiveness or repentance, for that matter. It became a very skinny Bible. It was really pretty much Thomas Jefferson's Bible, but really it was Thomas Jefferson's pamphlet. Uh, In fact, uh, there was another Bible like that called the Slave Bible. Uh, Growers in the West Indies and in the United States said, hey, if if these slaves get the Bible, it's all over because they're going to see that God made us to be free. They're going to read the Exodus account. They're going to see letters like Philema. They're going to figure out that uh, there's no slave or free. Jew or Gentile, male or female, it's we're free in Christ. So the, the, the slave Bible was another version of a Thomas Jefferson-like Bible, cutting out anything that would tell the full story of God's plan to liberate us into our right minds and right hearts. The groom's sister didn't like a verse he asked her to read at his wedding, and so when the time came for her to read this biblical passage, extolling love and marriage, uh, she changed it. Much to the shock of her brother and his bride and me as the pastor. Afterwards, I asked her, by what authority uh, was she doing that? What, what, it made, what made her think it was okay to change the Bible? And she said, I just didn't like it. And I knew I could improve on it. It was a Jeffersonian moment. It was a slave owner moment. And I reminded her that she was asked to read it, not edit it. But we continue to do this, don't we? 
Anything that makes us nervous about God getting too scary close, we want to cut it out. But it's his world, and he wants us to know that he's in it with us and for us. And so that's the third point. When Jesus healed, he was demonstrating his power, his commitment to reorder all things in an otherwise fallen world. A world that was created through him, by him, for our benefit. But having rebelled against him, we're in great dire jeopardy. And so Jesus came into the world to reorder it, to redeem it, to rescue it, to reclaim it. And so we see in Matthew 4, verses 23 to 25, when Jesus healed, I mean, excuse me, uh, Jesus went through Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, the kingdom and he, the king, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. We have 34 documented miracles in the Bible, but obviously he was healing hundreds and hundreds of people. And news about him spread all over Syria. And people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures. Now, stop here for a moment. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, well, you know, the people were so, it was like David Hume is speaking through them. You know, people back then were not that smart, not that educated, not that sophisticated. So if they, were, they thought somebody had a demon, really they were having a seizure. Well, apparently uh, they, make, they made the distinction then, because it says here, Uh, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed. And he healed them. A whole wider range of emotional and physical, psychological issues, spiritual issues, were being healed by Jesus all over the place. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, that was a stretch of 10 cities that Alexander the Great had established in Palestine. Uh, uh, He created these cities that had a Greek culture within that a Semitic culture. So large crowds from Galilee, from the Decapolis, from Jerusalem, Judea, the area around Jerusalem, and the region across the Jordan. All these people followed him. So He was healing hundreds and perhaps thousands and thousands of people. Why did he, he do miracles? To announce the kingdom and, and, and announce his role as king. Why didn't he do more? He did do more. He did more than we were even aware of. And yet there's more to come, you'll see. So in allowing for miracles, God does not violate his creation. He's redeeming it. God occasionally does things according to his will that we recognize and describe as miraculous. There's no other explanation for it, not a scientific explanation, not a psychological explanation. Just something that we're looking at saying, that's awesome. I just don't know how to explain it. But notice it's all embedded in creation. These kids that were healed, the little girl with a broken leg, the, the young boy with the, the internal injuries, a doctor, an excellent concierge doctor, a La Jolla, California doctor, carefully examines them, diagnoses them, and then at the end of the process says, they've been healed. This is a miracle. And so he's always good, always seeking to bless us. Let that sink in. God occasionally does things according to his will that we recognize and describe as miraculous, occasionally. But he's always 24-7 all the time doing good for us and seeking to bless us. This was so clear, so apparent about Jesus that a man named Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a religious uh, leader, came to see him by night. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the ruling council, the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. 
Why? For no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with them. These wonderful signs, these powerful signs, these meaningful signs we call miracles. And Jesus said, right, great, but you know what? That's not the whole story. The larger context of which that is a a key part, you must be born again. It's a larger miracle, uh, the miracle of salvation, being reunited, realigned with the living God in relationship. So Jesus said we need to be born again. We need the miracle of salvation. And then John, at the end of uh, his gospel, that was out of John chapter 3. Now at the end of the gospel of John 20 and 21, he says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, Savior, the Son of God, that by believing, you may have life in his name, salvation. He goes on to say, Jesus did many other things as well. Let me ask you this question. Have you prayed for a miracle to happen? Do you need a miracle in your life? If so, that's okay to pray for one. It's okay to yearn for one. Welcome miracles. But don't see them as superior to other means of God's grace. Welcome miracles. Pray for miracles. If somebody is sick, pray for them. Pray for their healing. But don't see that that's the only way God delivers his grace. He's not a vending machine. Uh, need a miracle. Another miracle here. And, and don't make the mistake of saying, God, if you love me, you, you do a miracle. Or to the person for whom you're praying, well, if you had more faith, it would work. Those are pernicious points of view. Rather, we pray that, Lord, out of your provision for us, whether it's through a medical solution, a miraculous solution, better hygiene and diet, I don't know. You know, All of it counts to God. And miracles are those wonderful occasional expressions that remind us, wow, we don't know everything, and we certainly don't control everything. So welcome miracles. Don't see them as superior to other means of God's grace. What would be the other means of God's grace? Well, how about this one? Like making us his disciples to do his will. That's one of the most profound means of God's grace in this gift of salvation. He's making us into his disciples who want to and know how to do his will, to join him in his work in the world, to not only be recipients of his work in the world, but to be conduits for it as well, partners with him in doing it. He is saving and sanctifying us. Let me explain that. Salvation is an ongoing miraculous gift only God could provide for us. Only God can save us. That's why we call people to believe in, to worship, to walk with Jesus the Messiah. There's no other name by which we can be saved. And then sanctification is God's miraculous provision for us, living at our salvation daily. If, if salvation is this transforming moment, a process that brings us to clarity about oh my God, I, I recognize you, I worship you, I receive you, I submit to you. Then the ongoing experience of that is what we call sanctification, the working out of the implications of our salvation. So a transforming moment becomes a transformational momentum. This is the power of God's ongoing provision in our lives in Christ. This is how people grow. Now, because of Christ, even our needs and our sufferings are contexts for growth. They produce growth. Not that we want to suffer, we want to have need, but God meets us in our needs and meets us even in our suffering to develop us, to take us deeper than we would go otherwise, to show us how to trust him 
Let that sink in. Your failings are not final. Your suffering isn't you being cut off from God. It's a place where God is meeting you. Your needs aren't representative of your ineptness, your lack of capacity, though they might be. What they are is the place where God meets us because we don't know what we need, and we don't know how to meet our needs, but for him. We're flailing around trying to fill ourselves with all kinds of things that don't actually meet our needs. And then there's things like worship and study, giving and serving that produce growth and development in us. All these are the means that God uses to develop us as people. So if you want to call those miracles, fine, but really what they are is the ongoing outworking, the ongoing outworking of God's saving grace for us, occasionally defined as a miracle, something we just can't explain. But these are processes that we can understand. So we become creative and resilient and resourceful as we work together in the Holy Spirit. I leave you with this from Hebrews. This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Signs and wonders and miracles, yes, but now also spiritual gifts he's giving us to equip us to be a living, ongoing miracle in him. This is how we grew up in Christ, and miraculously, God is in this process too. So Lord Jesus, we pray that as we respond to you, as we embrace you, as we uh, accept you into our life and submit to you as Lord and Savior, as we're born again, in that transforming moment, Lord, we pray that the ongoing transforming momentum would allow us to understand and appreciate, to depend on, to celebrate your providence for us with occasional miracles, but an ongoing experience of your abiding presence that makes all the difference. I pray this for my brothers and sisters who are watching this message. Uh, I pray that you do a work in us and through us that would bless others in your name. And in your name we pray. Amen. Well, great being with you. And may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine on you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you. May his love and grace, truth and power reflect from you onto the world around you. May you know his love now and forevermore. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Enjoy the rest of your day.